Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me is Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Greg Spears of RealStar. He is the Executive Vice President of Portfolio Management. And the interview today was set up by our partners at the Canadian Real Estate Forums as part of their Canadian Apartment Investment Conference, which is coming up shortly, September 15th and 16th. At the end of the show, we will have an after show, so please tune in. But now I'd like to welcome Greg to the show. Greg, welcome. Thank you very much, Adam. I'm happy to be here. So Greg, we're going to we start off our episodes in a similar fashion, which is kind of, you know, getting into the background of our guests. We'd love to hear how you got started in real estate, how you got to where you are today, and then after that we'll get into a bit of the real star story. Okay, thanks. Yeah, the real estate interest is something that's always appealed to me. I was always interested in sort of the built form and spatial relationships. So I actually studied geography at Queens, which I remember was a big disappointment to my father, given that it didn't really lead to any kind of career. So as I was winding that up, I tried to translate it into something or or correlate it into something that might lead me to a more meaningful career. So I applied to Cambridge University in England, and there I studied something called land economy, which was more of a real estate-oriented master's degree. So I did that, finished off my degree, and then headed back home to Montreal, my hometown. And I started my career back in 1995. So it's that. No, it's been a perfect long time run. to start real estate. Yeah. You know, what was interesting back then. It was 95 in Montreal, shortly after the referendum they had for independence. And I remember at the time, it was really not, not a happy time in Montreal at all. And moreover, real estate was not a happy business to be in because it was really immovable. And at that time, there was a lot of businesses that were moving, frankly. So anyhow, I got my career started. I worked at Collier's as an investment analyst right at the bottom, doing the crunching out the numbers, valuing the buildings, trying to help with pitches to get mandates to sell the properties. And it was really quite interesting because those were the days where you know entrepreneurs could start off with very small amounts of capital and buy some pretty sizable properties given the low valuation environment. I mean, I remember hearing about 10 caps back in the day. So things have changed a lot not only in Montreal, but across the country since then. So from there, I just because there was virtually no activity going on back in the day, I made a move over to leasing, actually, for a telecom company. Because at that time, this is when wireless networks were really rolling out and technology was like the latest and greatest thing. So we got a lot of excitement from that. I did that for a while, actually in Toronto, before I was seconded by that business to their French operations. So it was really challenging role. Moving over to France, I was actually just outside of Paris, uh, a little outside of Paris, and learned the hard way about the complexities of trying to do business in France and the extraordinary levels of regulation. Well, and you've got a, I'm assuming you have a Montreal or Quebecois accent or some sort of hybrid English Quebecois accent. And I mean, that, <laughs> I even do. that, my understanding is that even that will put you, you know, one step behind the eight ball, right? Well, you know, the funny thing is it certainly uh, helped me meet some attractive young women at the time, but it didn't always pay off when I was trying to get permits and that kind of thing done. But I certainly do remember more often than not, I'd, you know, I'd walk into somebody's office or try to negotiate something or other, and they'd be talking to me about their cousin that lives in Montreal, and do I know them? So it uh, took some isn't the, is The answer is yes, isn't it? Oh, yeah, Jean, I know Jean, of course. <laughs> of course I do. We're best buddies. Would you give me the permit, please? <laughs> so, 
anyway, that was exciting. But while I was there, I traveled a little bit about in uh, in France, and I bumped into one of my old Queens friends who was completing a degree at uh, at INSEAD, which is in Fontainebleau, just outside of Paris. And he raved about it, talked about the great experience he was having, and remember he used the term, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant in terms of like the level of stimulation and learning you got. So I applied and the only place I applied to. And essentially at that point, it was a bit of a bit of a wild card because I, I didn't know how that was going to evolve, but I got in and ended up spending a year in France, completing the MBA. And that uh, timing wasn't perfect either. I, I graduated in 2001, time perfectly for the next recession. And at that point, when I was done, I ended up moving to New York. And so my fiance had a job as a lawyer in New York. And so it, it worked well. I, I would move to New York and I worked for Deloitte Consulting in their real estate practice. did that for a couple of years. And that was a great learning experience. Fascinating organization and some great, great clients got to work with. Really running a wide range of different activities for Deloitte. But the travel was a little tough on me. So I, I ended up moving over to Lehman Brothers. And then I, um, I really screwed things up there. So <laughs> I think I read about that in the papers. <laughs> I had to leave the country. <laughs> so actually, that this that wound it up. It was kind of coming to an end, and at that point, I had made contact with the headhunter in Toronto because I wanted to come back to Canada. And we were growing a family. I thought I wanted to set put my roots down back at home in Canada, and I ended up starting a real star back in two thousand seven. What was your job title then? It was VP of investments. So we were acquiring properties. It was interesting. The business was very different back then. It was it was far less institutional, far less institutional capital. And our business was primarily, you know, call it 90% of our revenue or some significant portion of our revenue was, was based on property management fees. And so acquisitions in many cases were essentially finding deals, putting them in front of investors in view to securing the property management rights. Hmm. But I, honestly, it didn't take me long to figure out that, you know, that's not where the money is. The money is, and the more interesting careers are actually being the, the person that to switch on, on the investment decisions. So I worked with the owners and David Langell, my guy that brought me into the company. And the three of us created or designed a private equity fund. And we had no track record with, with private equity, but we had a lot of determination and we had a platform. Uh, property management platform and the ability to acquire properties. So we, it was really fascinating at this point. So we went and knocked on a lot of doors, trying to raise capital for the first time with no track record. We were fortunate enough, actually, we had CIBC agreed to join us as, as, as placement agent. So Paul Farrell helped us get some doors open. But I remember the process of, of trying to raise money for the first time. And it was tough sledding. Not everybody no, was, repu- no reputation, right? Nobody knows who you guys are. Yeah, and, and they probably have, you know, a dozen other companies that have already knocked on their door that month and have track records and are known entities. So what was the size of the portfolio, Greg, at that time, like just to put a peg in the sand? How big were you at the point? Like what were what were the number of assets or number of units? Or And it was exclusively apartments. I mean, just to be clear yeah. for our listeners, right? Yeah, that's all we do is Canadian apartments. So we had... Probably somewhere between twenty and twenty-five thousand suites under management, and as I said, those were the lion's share. Of those were property management mandates, but for some big institutions, so we had a good reputation in that respect. But you know, knocking on those doors, it took a while to find lead investors, and that's really what it took. Is we found two 
like-minded organizations that are really well known in, in the Canadian industry. And the uh, heads of real estate in those, those two groups agreed to move forward. And of course, they looked at our fee proposal and I said, no, no, no that's not how it's going to be. <laughs> they set the terms. Uh, well, so what were the big changes then in that? What, uh, what, what did you end up saying? Obviously, we're not looking for details, but what kind of yield were you, you know, advertising at the time and how did they restructure it for you at your end? You know, it was a different era. So returns were higher and we promised a core fund that could deliver 13% IRR. And again, you know, a lot of investors are, they're enticed by like mid-teens or even high teens. But to generate a you know, 13% IRR net of fees was achievable back in those days if you don't deal with uh, cap rate compression. I mean, cap rate compression has done a huge amount of, contribute to a significant amount of gains for all of us. But without that, 13 was achievable. And then the fees, fee structures in Canada are very different than they are in the U.S. You know, there's no such thing as catch-ups in Thing. We rarely get catch-ups on incentives. Incentive fees are smaller. Investment management fees are lower. But you know, we, we deliver good value for what we provided. We generated returns in excess of the 13 that we promised. But cap rate compression helped. You know, Greg, you said something. You found like-minded partners. Maybe just talk about what that like-mindedness was. Just about what maybe your investment philosophy was, and just kind of what the you know quote-unquote pitch was that they said, "Yeah, you guys are the people that we want to you know partner up with." Well, so I guess there's the personality fit, which really helps. These two lead investors, really smart, seasoned, capable people, and they could cut right to the the heart of any issue. So they could negotiate the term sheet quite quickly and also come up with a vision that I think we all agreed with, which was to acquire high caliber properties for the long term. So most fund structures, ours is a closed end fund for the nine year term. You know, it takes a couple of years to buy the properties, to stabilize them. And their point was, why sell them at the end of nine years? Just when you've got them, you know, performing at their optimal level, you sell it and you just buy another one just for the sake of collecting your incentive. He said, well, let's structure this differently. We'll arrange for the ability to continue ownership after the nine-year term. And that was, a, that was a key selling feature for them because some of these assets, I mean, beautiful new assets can last decades and decades and decades. So why sell? So that, that was a key part of it. And because we were a relatively small group of, of investors, I mean, it was just, it was a great relationship. They call us anytime they want to talk. We call them if we're encountering something that may have been kind of borderline in terms of what the investment criteria were. And it's been a relationship since 2010 that, you know, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, some of those investors, I would say, really become friends. Not afraid to hit the golf ball or the tennis ball with that uh, with some of them. So and good. That's a good non-tangible benefit to a partner. You know, something other than just spreadsheet results. If uh, you like working with them, that has real value in your life as well. Yeah, I mean, business is. I mean, there's the numbers of it all, but there's also the relationships. And as you say, you got to like not only the people you work with, but having clients that you that you like that uh, you're aligned with. It just it makes the days go by really, really easily. I couldn't agree more. So now we're guessing our chronology. I like the chronology aspect of this. I think we're around 2010. So what happened next? I mean, I know what happened to valuations shortly after an apartments, which must have been, you know, happy times at, uh, at RealStar. But continue us along the, the journey of your timeline here. Yeah, so we managed to uh, get those two lead investors and they brought along a couple other investors and that allowed us to close our first fund. And so we raised, that was $200 million. And for us, that was, that was a big accomplishment on our first fund. And off we went. Wiring properties, 
throughout Canada, really. We started off with some value-add properties because we knew we could generate significant gains on those quickly. We've got a great track record. We've got all the sort of discipline leads in, a, in our company, whether it's construction management, energy reduction initiatives, and other things. So we started on those, but we weren't able to generate a significant deal volume on reasonable, but we wanted to pick up our deal volume. So we got into, we think we pioneered this, although I'm sure others would dispute it. We got into the concept of forward purchases, which is essentially a contract with a developer to complete the construction of a new apartment building at a fixed price, at a fixed date. And, and you agree to the plan, so you know what you're getting. And the thinking there was Canada was really ready for a new generation of apartments because we really had the lion's share of our apartment product built in the 1960s in the era of, you know, fridge and stove and closed kitchens and all that. So we wanted to be able to provide a product that competed with condos. And our view was that we could get some deal flow through this forward purchase program. And so we launched that and we really created an approach that formalized it. And now we have a you know, standardized approach of dealing with it. It's fairly well trench now in the Canadian marketplace. So I think one of the greatest has been able to line up Canadian institutional capital with these apartments. So we, rather than having our big Canadian institutions answering the phone from American groups or foreign groups, you're dealing with Canadians. And groups such as ours are helping flow that capital into the developer world that gets these projects built, providing the kind of housing that you know, Canadians are, have come to expect. Not only the quality of the, the housing, but the volume. I mean, if you look at the population growth we've experienced in the past couple of years, we need more rental housing. And I think we've been a great facilitator for that. Greg, we're good. we will 100% get into, you know, just the state of the market pre-COVID, current COVID, post-COVID, because I, I really want to hear your thoughts on just what you're seeing in the marketplace. I want to stick to this forward purchase for a second, because I think it's an interesting concept. And let's add context. First National and Realstar have a pretty strong relationship. And, and so Adam and I have some familiarity with your program, but let's maybe break it down a little bit for those that are less familiar. And maybe just from a lender's perspective, that concept of doing the construction financing, knowing that there's sort of an institutional purchase at the end for somebody that's got the property management expertise, it kind of, it really is a creative product as far as from an investment perspective, because you kind of give comfort to a lot of different steps along the development strategy or the development stages. What was it like at the beginning going to developers who may not have built apartments before, maybe were thinking about it and you guys said, listen, I'll give you the certainty of exit. You build it at a cost that you think you can go and I'll make sure that you get out whole with the yield. Was it just everybody frothing at the mouth or was it hard to convince some people that that was a viable plan? Truthfully, it took a while to convince developers of the, the benefit of this. A lot of developers can easily sell these projects as condominiums. And one of the issues some of the developers face is that they're thinly capitalized. So the minute you know the wind blows the wrong way, well, I'm exaggerating a bit, but one of the challenges, if there's market disruptions that occur... The pandemic uh, blows the wrong way, right? It, yeah. it, exactly. All of a sudden, they don't get the pre-sales they expected. They get really nervous. and they're looking for a, a sure exit. Now, typically speaking, they're, they're selling to us at a price that would be lower than what they would sell to a retail condos. So they're giving up some of their margin, but they're exchanging that for certainty. They're taking risk off the table when they sell to a group like ours. And what, I mean, obviously every deal is different, but what do you typically see 
in a discount to if they just built it and sold it in the open market? What sort of discount do you seek in order to justify the risk that you're taking on that you're committing to a future unknown market? Yeah, it's we underwrite every deal differently. And a lot of it, you know, when you end up dealing with the developers is they're looking at a, a margin on their cost. And while they also look at what they could have made if they sold it as condos, I think some of them also look at this as, as a repeatable product. So, and we've done this before. We've developed good relationships with a developer. We do one, yeah, it's worked out, let's do another one. And it allows them to have some optionality for their projects. Some of them will have projects that they sell to us. Others, they'll continue to, to, to market as condos. It just creates optionality. And the, you know, in terms of the, the returns, we obviously expect a higher return than we would get if we acquired a stabilized apartment. You know, what is it, 50, 75 bips premium on a stabilized yield basis? Something like that. It's, it's yeah. always hard it, to measure. It's an art, not a science, right? Like lots of things in real estate. How, I mean, it's part of the challenge, I would guess, I mean, you guys are property management experts, so you clearly have an idea of what you want your assets or what the ideal asset would look like. Were you allowed to get involved in the planning stages or they kind of just said, no, 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 I'm going to build it the way I build all my projects and you just buy it and you're taking the risk that it doesn't work out, right? Like, are you allowed to get engaged and give guidance on number of bedrooms and and bachelors and plus dens and all the nuances of the development? Yeah, I mean, it depends how far along they are. Sometimes the project is essentially baked and there's very little you can do to, to change it. But if we get in early enough, we typically have a lot of ideas of what makes a successful rental building as opposed to what they thought was going to be a successful condo. You know, if you think of a condo, you only need to sell it once. So if somebody comes along, they get excited, they say, wow, stainless fridge and glitzy granite countertops. I can look the other way that the unit is only 400 square feet or something tiny. Whereas in the case of a rental building, you have to release that unit, you know, almost numerous times throughout the, the investment life cycle. So it better have a design that is enduring. And the glitz and the gloss and the stainless and the quartz, it wears off pretty fast. So we look very carefully at layouts. Size really matters. I think we're really having that hammered home right now with the pandemic. Small units are tough to market in this environment. And so I'm glad we've, we've taken projects, you know, we're Somebody might say, okay, this is a 150-unit property, and we, we look at the unit sizes, and you know, if we're going to buy it, it's going to be 120 units, and you're going to make them bigger. So there's that little layout. Some of the materials we use, the durability of materials is pretty important. Now, I remember going to a friend's condo one time and we had this uh, exotic softwood floors, and she couldn't wear heels on the floor because the, the wood was so delicate. We don't have those floors. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, there's a, a developer with some regret that those floors. You mentioned that leasing is a uh, small units is tough during COVID, but has COVID created more opportunities for your forward sale program? Does you know additional question marks in the environment compel people to take the surety of your offering? You know, I would have hoped for for more deal flow in some ways, or more more opportunities to come about because we, we have fresh capital and we're eager to deploy it. But I think. On the other hand of that, I think we're all reassured by the fact that the, there remains tremendous liquidity for continued investments. Investors are there. Lenders are there. And you guys have been there for, for us. So we haven't seen any drop-off in values at all. So we're not seeing the great opportunities. You know, I would say there's two things that have occurred is NOIs have dropped. 
So the, the profitability of these buildings dropped a little bit. Depends on the market. But the interest rates that we're able to get from uh, mortgage lenders have been tremendous. You know, are, are you guys going to quote a rate? <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll leave that. We'll leave that to Mitch. <laughs> you know, Greg, we kind of got sidetracked here. Let's just finish your time frame and, and your timeline, sorry, and then and then we'll get into other things. You know, it was 2014 we started talking about forward purchases. Maybe just finish off the last six years of your career to where you are today, what you do today, and then let's okay. move forward. Yeah, let's move on. Sure. So as that evolved, our portfolio evolved. I moved from acquisitions into asset management. We needed to manage that portfolio. And, and we also managed to win a major mandate from BCIMC, which at the time was a very large owner of Canadian apartments. So they had about 12,000 suites. And we, we managed to get an asset management mandate for close to 6,000 suites. That was really exciting because that was a portfolio they held for a long time. And some of them were outstanding locations. And so that was a very successful man. I, honestly, I loved working with that client. They were based in Victoria. So it was always pleasant to go there in the winter. And we just had a, a kind of client that really was nudged us along nicely in terms of innovation and sharing great ideas across their international portfolio. And I think that's really where I, I benefited from the exposure that they had to their U.S. investments and really learned that, uh, frankly, the U.S. market is more evolved than ours, or at least at the time. We're trying to catch up, but it's, it's so much more competitive. They innovate so much more quickly. They build quickly, and we can always learn things from them. And I think we brought some of their best practices over. So that mandate was exciting. We even managed to get some development mandates from them to actually build apartments or intensify apartments on some of their uh, sites. It was all going great until they pulled the plug. They um, essentially internalized and created their own organization known as Quadreal. They'll have a good relationship with those guys, but uh, they've got a great portfolio now that they're asset managing. So that came to an end. But by this point, we'd been growing our private equity business to a large extent such that it didn't dramatically impact our business. We were up at our, we're now at our fifth fund and the fund size is now increasing. Fifth fund was $400 million. And it, I would say one thing that's evolved a little bit is, you know, with fund management, it's, it's a lot of it's a financial, amount of financial engineering involved in getting your optimal capital structure, using the right bits of debt, selling the assets that are sort of ripe for selling or no longer fit the, uh, the portfolio. And those type of activities end up being a lot more time in front of your computer screen and a lot more modeling with different types of people and you end up with bringing in different skill sets within your organization. But they're very meaningful. It has a big impact in terms of your ability to generate the kind of returns you're promising your investors. And I would say what's been layered on top of that more recently is, is big initiatives around ESG, environment, social, and governance. And there's a big risk management orientation of that. And we're spending quite a bit of time on risk management, as I'll just share one little anecdote. One of the challenges we're facing is, in this industry, significant pullback on insurance. Many groups like ours and others have noticed that we're able, it's more challenging to get the kind of insurance we want. So, and pushing a very high deductibles into, into uh, policies. So, we're having to be a lot more proactive about how we manage risk in our portfolio. And that's a key part of the value proposition that we offer to investors. We did a big episode on the hardening insurance market 
not too long ago. I mean, of course, as real estate lenders, we're seeing the same thing across our clients' portfolios as well. Maybe just let's, can we just dive in? We're kind of just going, you know, pulling on strings here. What is it that you're doing aside from maybe co-insurance or higher deductibles? But how does that ESG play into getting your insurance providers on side to allow you to keep those costs down? Well, I'm not sure that we're going to keep the cost down, but we're going to do our best. So what we're starting to look at now is portfolio-wide risk related to environmental factors. And that would include seismic events, extreme weather events. Flooding. uh, Flooding, all those kind of things. You know, look at the lower mainland of BC. It's earthquake zone. Look at the wildfires that occurred in Fort Mac that I don't think anybody would have expected. The flooding that occurred in Calgary. All of those things had dramatic impact in terms of the losses that the real estate sector and the insurance sector experienced. So it's important for us to understand when we're acquiring a property or when we're managing our portfolio to understand those risks, like the extent of our properties being in you know 50-year floodplains, the extent of our properties being in uh, risky seismic zones, and making sure that our insurance aligns with those risks, I think is a key thing. And then secondly, is there anything we can do to increase the resiliency of our assets or harden the assets so that when that tornado flows through town, that we're not having vital pieces of equipment fly off the building or that our generators in the bottom level of the parking garage and it's flooded, those kind of things. So it's, it's a fair amount of work to understand the risk and then second of all, try to figure out how to reduce the risk within those portfolios because the days of sort of fobbing that off on the insurance company, those are gone. On that topic, what asset in your portfolio has suffered the worst in any environmental incident? What's the worst phone call you got about, oh, you won't believe it, uh, what happened to the building? You know, we've been fortunate, but we did property manage a, a property in Calgary that was pretty badly flooded. And so that, that was certainly a problem. What was that? Uh, floods in Calgary. We've had floods in Toronto. I mean, stuff happens, but we've been fortunate enough that we've had property management building that caught fire. That was, that was troubling. Stuff happens, but it, I think we were probably, a, at least my understanding is our experience, our loss history is much lower than the industry average. It's just that we have a lot of properties, so bad things happen once in a while. Oh, no, no judgment. I definitely understand that life happens. I was just saying that in case there was an insurance underwriter listening to this podcast. (laughs) 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 Have you found for your property management side, for your third party property management side, you know, people always say that in times of trouble, there's a flight to quality. So have you seen a higher interest in your services as a result? And, you know, your services being the professional management side of it, that in an environment where apartment assets might be a little tougher to manage for the next little while, that they want pros on the job? You know, it's, it's interesting. The property, the fee for management, that property management business, it's really diminished as a, as a portion of our, of our revenue, in part because most of the institutions have internalized in some fashion or other. Some life as a client, they ended up partnering up or buying Bentall at Green Oak. ECMC with Quadrio. <laughs> we had Conundrum for a while. They ended up partnering with Q Residential. And, you know, the, there is a, um, a tax arbitrage that's pretty meaningful from internalizing because you're not paying HST on everything. So it can be challenging to compete with that. And I think a lot of investor groups have seen that there's there's a lot of value to having all that market knowledge internal to your organization as opposed to it residing in a third-party organization. So at this point, 
the third party property management business, you know, I think we still have a lot to offer, but we, as a, what I would call a high touch, high value add property manager, the market demand is not as strong as it is for my optics for the perhaps the more cost efficient service providers. I like the careful wording. So then I, I guess uh, over the same time frame, I mean, if we're still kind of doing the very tail end of your chronology, it sounds like we're almost to the current day. Has the value proposition of RealStar shifted? I just don't mean during COVID. Call it the last couple of years. As you mentioned, you've kind of shifted the weighting of where you're spending your resources and energy as a company. Has your value proposition changed over the last couple of years? Good question. I mean, we really have pivoted, slowly pivoted towards becoming an investment manager. And as I mentioned, the types of people we now have, you know, numerous CFAs and some people that are extraordinarily capable from a quantitative standpoint, incredible from a structuring standpoint. And that, I think, ends up being a really key part of the value proposition. We're still out there acquiring properties and have people on the sort of the bricks and sticks side of things, making sure that we're creating as much value at the properties as possible. But we have to marry that with the, call it the analytical and the financially driven groups. So there's that piece of it. And I would say that also the environment has become more competitive, many more competitors in the space right now. And some of them are quite good. So I, I, you know, I commend them on having grown their, their, their organizations effectively. Others, I think, have realized the hard way that it's, it's a challenging business. It's intensive. It's management intensive to deal with regulation, to deal with people, to deal with all of the challenges that may occur across the country. And you need a critical mass in order to be effective. Some groups may find that, hey, look, I, you know, I've got a critical mass here in uh, Ottawa, for example. That's, that's more than enough for me. But typically, when you're dealing with institutional investors, they want a geographically diversified portfolio. And so you have to have the mass to be able to function effectively from coast to coast. And given that all the regulations are provincial and that you know, being able to find tradespeople and contractors and what have you, it's, it's very much a local business. Groups that may have decided that they're national have realized just how hard it is to keep an effective national platform working. And we've done it. We're committed to being national, and I think we're effective in all, all the major markets. We've seen clients attempt and successfully do it, move from you know, local markets to becoming more national or, or get outside of their comfort province. But it's very, very difficult. You've got to start from scratch almost every time you try to move jurisdictions. Greg, I've got a kind of a, this kind of fun question. What's easier, raising capital or deploying capital? <laughs> or know, what's harder? I don't know, whichever way you want to look at it. It's, it's, re- it's really interesting. So at the outset, it was very hard to raise capital. It became easier once we had a track record and a good track record and then word of mouth and, and good relationships. So it, it became a lot easier. And then deploying capital to generate the kind of returns that our investors are expecting is becoming more challenging in this environment. I mean, underwriting a deal in the environment where your rents are dropping and you're potentially looking at rent freezes is not not easy. Well, yeah, let's do that. Sorry, Greg, let's do that. It's September 1st and the province of Ontario just announced no rental increases this year, right? So there you go. And vacancies are up, right? I think it's you're seeing it across the board. So, and However, interest rates are at, at historic lows. So where do you see it? Maybe let's transition into... What you're seeing in the marketplace, you know, September 1st, you know, six months into the pandemic with what feels like, you know, no end in sight. Yeah, I think 
we need to take sort of take the long view on this. If you're deploying capital today, you're not looking to generate that. You know, you're not going to crystallize this for years, for many, many years. So can you find the right property at the right location and hold your breath for call it two years while we deal with the disruption related to the pandemic? I think that's how we need to look at these things. And one of the challenges I think that bring a degree of uncertainty, uncertainty to me at this point is, did we reach peak downtown? I mean, the, the momentum building in downtown Canadian markets was just tremendous in the past couple of years that call it the cap rate premium between a downtown property and a suburban property was becoming quite pronounced as were the rents. Everybody wanted to be downtown. Offices were packing up and moving from Mississauga to downtown Toronto. And this seemed to coincide exactly, you know, you had the pandemic occur where all of a sudden downtown's frankly struggling as people have realized that if they're dealing with all the inconvenience of downtown, but not getting the the lovely benefits of all the great bars and restaurants and vitality of downtown, why pay that rent premium to be there? So, you know, is this a longer term issue that people have said, oh, wow, I really enjoyed having a, a lawn or green space around me that I can get when I get to the suburbs and I'm not having to do long commute. I think there's a degree of uncertainty on that front. Now, notwithstanding that, I will, I will share um, a story I had from when I was uh, started my career back when I started in New York back in 2001, I remember many of the mandates we had were trying to help companies get out of Manhattan to diversify their footprints into other locations, whether it was New Jersey or Florida or somewhere. And by the end of my time in Manhattan, that situation completely reversed where people were coming back because they enjoyed the vitality of downtown. So this could be a temporary blip where people just come back downtown and the rent premiums get achieved again once people are comfortable that the vaccine is effective? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's a more enduring move further outside the core. So it does raise the point of, you know, when you're deploying capital, you're talking about commitments of, of many, many years and you're trying to deal with a, a short-term response. Will this shift your long-term planning? Would you be more excited by an asset opportunity that's you know, suburban or outer ring of a downtown as opposed to downtown right now because of this environment? Or do you think that this will be solved and uh, you just stick with your thesis that you would have had in January? I'll put it this way. I mean, there's a degree of uncertainty with downtown, whereas we've long track record of investing in the suburbs and in the, call it the secondary markets, you know, call them Guelph or Kingston or whatever it ends up being. We've got a portfolio there that has been performing very well. So we have, I think, continued confidence in that market So or those markets. So I think getting the underwritings to hit our numbers are a heck of a lot easier in those locations where rents are still growing or at least stable than they are downtown right now. Greg, I want to, we're kind of going around a bit here, but I want to bring it back to something you had brought up earlier that I always find interesting. And you got through the E of ESG, but never really covered the S and the G, the social and the governance. You kind of said it's something that's topical and it's coming up more and more. And I know even from you know, First Nationals business that it's some questions that we get asked from our investors about you know what our ESG policy and platforms look like. So maybe just talk through what it means to you, what it means to Realstar and the different things, that different initiatives you may be undertaking as it relates to you know, the social and the governance component of ESG? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would say the social piece of it is, is an area that we spent quite a bit more time on recently. And it's very topical because we're hearing a lot in the media and the press about ensuring that underrepresented groups 
are better represented in the workforce. Now, let's, or workforce, but, you know, if, if you look more broadly, obviously there's certain sectors where different demographic groups demonstrate preference or not. But the reality is here in the sector we're involved in real estate and finance, it tends to be dominated by certain groups like myself. Yeah. Well, and Greg, let me add to that. Adam and I had the pleasure of interviewing Dennis Mitchell. Yeah, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dennis Mitchell a couple of weeks ago as part of the Real Estate Forum Club. And, and it was, uh, he was constantly just talking about, you know, the challenges that we face as a black man in a, in a white, quite frankly, sort of where he's a severe minority in, in the real estate executive world. And that needs to change, like 100% full stop, right? So it's interesting, how do you make a change? You know, if, if your goals are to increase the representation of those groups, being it women or black people, how do you make it happen? And, and we had a couple of open positions really to fill recently. And that was a really key piece of our recruiting criteria. Now, the challenge was that we weren't necessarily able to successfully fill those roles with our demographic targets. So we're trying to figure out how do you build a pipeline of candidates that meet those demographic goals. And so we've really dug deep on that front in terms of reaching out with some community organizations that are, are I guess, part of the Black community. And we're kind of in the early days of that, but it will be a key piece for us is to find a channel because we weren't getting the candidates, quite frankly, just we just didn't have the candidates. So you can say, yes, you want to recruit, but if candidates aren't coming in, you certainly can't discern that from a resume either. How do you find it? And our thinking is by partnering with some organizations, we might be able to get a pipeline of, of candidates that would fit. And hopefully we grow from there on that piece of things. I would say the same thing with women. They tend to be underrepresented in our sector. How do you bring them in? And so we, we as well have been trying to recruit at universities and others and really trying to shape jobs around candidates. And we've actually done that. And the hope is that, you know, we're planting the seeds today that will bear fruit in the future. But it takes time and it takes commitment. And I think all of us are, are committed on that front. I would add something else. One thing that we did that was quite interesting is we had an unconscious bias training session, which I will admit when I was first signed up for that, I thought, well, I don't have any unconscious bias. <laughs> this isn't for me. It's for somebody else. But in fact, it was, it was really enlightening to understand some of those concepts and, and how we can apply them to make it kind of a better workforce. And, and frankly, you know, we hear a lot about diversity, but a lot of what we were taking away is, is not just about diversity of identity groups, but it's diversity of ideas, diversity of educational and professional backgrounds that help bring a more talented and more innovative and more engaged workforce. And so you can apply that term across a, a range of criteria that I think bring us all to a better spot. And the big part, of course, is you have to make the industry attractive in order to get those kind of top talent people into it. And kind of tearing down the idea of a closed club is the, the, the critical first step. You have to make it because, you know, it's, it's a well-paying industry. It's a fun industry, which that's enough for a lot of people to join any, any industry. But if it seems like a closed club, then you're, you're not going to want to, you're not going to be attracted to it when you have options coming to university, which then puts you generally into one stream or the other of where your career is headed. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we've, we've gone to, uh, to great lengths to make sure everybody feels comfortable in, in the business. And there've been some golf, actually, let's just talk about golf as a, for instance, there have been some concerns that you know, maybe golf is not inclusive enough. And that's something we've taken into account 
on different client engagement arrangements. But at the same time, we I don't think golf's going away in terms of engagement with people. I mean, it's, it's something people do, and but there are other ways to engage that don't involve that activity. You know, it's something that's going to occur after work or in other arrangements to develop those relationships with clients. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for taking the time to participate and sharing your thoughts. I mean, very encouraging, and I'm happy to hear that it's not just fodder, right? This concept of ESG, people kind of like think they just have to talk about it and it goes away, but you, you really do have to put action behind your words. And it, it's great to hear that RealStar is really, truly taking that initiative. And again, thank you for coming on. Thanks for your comments. Thanks to Informa for introducing Greg to us. You know, of course, part of our Canadian Investment Apartment Conference. And of course, stay tuned after the music. Adam and I will do a quick digestion of the conversation we had as part of our after show. Thanks again, Greg. All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate After Show, the end of the game portion where Aaron and I share our thoughts on the interview we just did. My big takeaway from this was we definitely talk about apartments a lot, which makes sense given that it is our favorite asset class, but we did manage to talk about a handful of topics today that we've not covered before, which I always take as, as a breath of fresh air and I hope listeners like it too. But the first one that kind of stuck out was the forward sale. I can't believe we ever talked about this on this podcast before, given that it's a not prominent method of acquiring assets, but it's definitely it's definitely a tool in the toolbox that a handful of groups do use. Yeah, and, and we we see it more, of course, you know, being apartment financing, we see it, we've seen it regularly for years, but I'm not sure a lot of people are familiar with it, right? I mean, I think you probably, although, you know, we've had the conversation about, you know, merchant developers before, right? So there are guys out there that, again, as you said, are kind of not well capitalized. It's just so much easier to just kind of turn the development through and making sure you've got that consistent exit. And you're right, I'm surprised it's ever really come up before. I'd be curious who's thinking, no, 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 you didn't invent that because he kind of thought that he pioneered <laughs> it. I wonder how many other groups are saying, no, no, we did that first. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, a very, a very probably more prevalent part of the apartment industry than people realize. Yeah, because if you're generally a condo developer, you're used to a certain business model, largely involving pre-sales, and this mimics that big piece of it. You know, you're not dying to throw any huge chunk of equity and have it sit there. So I fully get why people people jump on it, and of course, taking risk. If you are a developer at the stage where you generally only have one or two projects on the go, when you're generally taking the money to the next one, you don't have a total lot of room for error. You know, margins are not huge in this business, and it does take that risk off the table. If you can well, deliver the product. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, think about the execution risk. I mean, all they've got to do is deliver, but there's no pre-sale offices. There's no pre-sale risk. You don't have to wait to hit pre-sale thresholds for your financing to kick in. You kind of just, you can save yourself a whole bunch of development costs and timeframes. You can probably turn out buildings more quickly. So get more projects done on, a, on any particular duration of time. So for those that have decided they're just builders and they don't want to get into the management ownership side of the business, what a great tool for them. Particularly in times like today, like you asked the question about, is there more opportunity given you know what we're seeing in the condo market, a little bit of, of slowdown in sale absorption? And unfortunately, he said not as much as he'd like. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things have not come to fruition during COVID that we, that we thought they would. But most of them are usually the, for the best though. You don't necessarily want a market flooded with amazing deals because it likely means that a lot of people's houses are on fire and that's not good for for us as a whole. Yeah, no, definitely not. And I, I mean, I'd be worried if you were doing the future purchase, buying a condo from a developer that's building it almost exclusively as a condo, the amenity package doesn't fit properly. The layouts don't fit properly. Like he talked about, the quality of the finishes don't fit properly. So there's just there's just so much risk. I'm sure they look at a ton of stuff and go, nah, I don't. I just don't think that's going to work for a long term hold. 
one other thing that struck me as funny, I was going to mention it during the recording, but didn't, is we talked about insurance. I mean, for anybody who's, you know, renewed a policy on apartments in the last little while, I'm sure have noticed a large increase in their premiums payable this year and last year. And so Aaron, you may remember at our first national January conference, we identified insurance as the big risk for 2020. Of course, now that's <laughs> a distant second to COVID-19, but that was identified as us uh, by us in January as you know a risk. And it, it is showing up now more and more. Uh, we're underwriting properties with this very big per unit insurance cost, and that comes straight off NOI, which then, of course, impacts value. You know, there's a real effect there. Yeah, I mean, and insurance is not a big part of the expense pro forma, right? I mean, I'm trying to think of numbers. We used to underwrite it sort of 150 a door. So if it was 100 units, right, that's $15,000 when your taxes and utility costs just dwarf that insurance expense. But every dollar matters. So if it's going from $15,000 for that 100 unit building to $25,000, that's 10,000 bucks off your NOI. Like that's material. I think everybody's experiencing that 30, 40, 50% growth in their insurance costs. And like he indicated, trying to figure out ways to deliver some risk management so that the insurance companies, you know, keep giving them the benefit of being low risk and therefore keep their premiums down. And the worst part about expense increases like that is this one that renters don't see. You know, if you, if you spent an extra 10 grand on R&M for the year, you know, renters see that. They notice the work on the building, but they don't notice the fact that you're just paying more for insurance. Yeah, you can't go back to your tenants and say, hey, guess what? My insurance is up and that's great for you. So you better, you know, pay me an extra 50 bucks a month. It just doesn't work that way, does it? (laughs) What about the US market, Aaron? We talked about that briefly, about them being ahead of Canada in a lot of regards. I mean, I, I know that I've been exposed to in the past and the example I'll use is student housing. You know, the, the amenity war in student housing that started there 10 years ago. You know, you wouldn't believe like lazy pools and, you know, things like that are included for student housing down there. And, you know, we're just kind of seeing the amenity war starting here in Canada. What's been your exposure with, you know, U.S.-based groups and how far ahead of the curve do you think they are on us? I mean, it's so challenging, right? Because one, it's, you know, massive universities, right? So it's not quite the same geographic, regardless, just from a population density perspective. And then my other thought is they are in a different climate, quite frankly, right? It makes sense to put a like a lazy river in your student housing if it's 25 degrees 12 months a year. But you can't, you just can't do things like that. I mean, I guess you could build a public space or a public amenity space for ice rinks and things that can be converted from pools to ice rinks in the wintertime. But, you know, you remember the Canadian climate has a big impact on what you can and cannot do as far as, you know, amenities. And, and I think sometimes people forget that, that, you know, copying what they do in the U.S. is great. But, you know, and quite frankly, for those five warm months in Canada, three of those months, the students are at university. So it, I mean, there's a lot of things that I don't think really translate properly. What if you took it out farther, though, not necessarily using student housing example, prop tech or crowdfunding, you know, things like that, they're way ahead of us. Do you think it's true that they lead and we follow in, in all aspects? Oh, for of sure. I mean, I, I was just exposed and I, I apologize. I can't remember the name of the company, but you can now get, and this is on the financing side, like you can now get commercial real estate financing in 24 hours. Right. They've got there's like a crowdfunding thing and you apply, you say, I'm buying this office tower and I need eighteen million dollars and it gets distributed to, you know, seventy thousand people that have indicated they want to invest in debt on office buildings and money just quickly goes in. You kind of enter how much money you want to participate in and it literally happens in twenty four hours. But you got a market of three hundred and fifty million people and a lot of money, right? Different tax structures. I mean, there's all sorts of, of variability there that allow for those types of innovations to get picked up so quickly. I mean I think there's been a number of startups in Canada tried to do that crowdsourcing thing. And I sure I know in certain instances 
they've been successful, but really on small, really small scale. You know, I go back to the concept of not just the population. I don't know how many banks they have, but it's thousands of banks, right? State banks and you know, federal banks, of course, and there's, you know, municipal banks, I think, versus six banks in Canada, really. I mean, there's there's 10 or 12 kind of main ones nationally, but it's just a different, it's a different world. So it's really hard to make that comparison, I think. The last thing I wanted to, to mention was, we talked about a little bit was the pace which real estate can adapt to respond to changes glacier slow. I mean, it makes sense given that, you know, development timelines are very long. It's very difficult to retrofit existing product, which makes it difficult to respond to very rapid changes in the environment like we've had now. As we've heard from a few guests now that the overriding thought is COVID is a two-year experience and, you know, apartment life cycles of a 50-year experience, maybe not the same owners, but, you know, call it from development to a potential replacement. So is it as simple as COVID will be solved before the industry has a real chance to respond? Yeah, I don't know. Some people are theorizing that coronavirus or COVID is just the first coronavirus that's coming through. And, you know, we haven't had a pandemic in 100 years, but, you know, it really should have been every 20 years. And we just have gotten lucky the last 100 years that nothing, you know, SARS a little bit and, you know, one of the Zika virus and things, but nothing to this extent. And that, you know, really, it, it, it is a much shorter cycle of pandemics that we should experience in the future. And so with that thought process, then no, yeah, we should be pandemic proofing our real estate, right? Larger elevators, different ingress, egress, you know, I don't know, like whatever you can think of. But I mean, geez, Louise, wouldn't it be tough to throw $30 million or $50 million into a development that's a pandemic proof development? And then it's another 100 years until there's a pandemic. Now you just look like an idiot that spent a whole bunch more money and lost a whole bunch of your footprint building, you know, different ways to keep people socially distanced, right? Building elevators the size of uh, boxcars and, <laughs> and whatever else yeah, you need or, to or yeah, having, yeah, double the capacity, double the number of elevators or whatever it is, you can move people up and down. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's, a, there's lots of different things you can think about, but I don't know. Like that, I think that's the impossible question. It's probably going to have to be another pandemic at a pretty rapid frequency. Let's call it five years from now where people go, ah, shoot. Okay, you know what? My next project, I'm going to build some sort of, sort of pandemic proofing into it. But I mean, fingers crossed, heaven forbid that that's not the case. That doesn't happen. And 100 years from now, society's looking back going, remember that? Remember coronavirus? Remember COVID-19? That was crazy, right? So not you I and don't. I looking back 100 years from now, but other people looking back 100 years from now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I mean, that was a great conversation we had today. I mean, Greg's brilliant. I know Real Star is, you know, really a, a, a top in class in the apartment space. And so I think, I think that's probably enough for today. Thanks to our listeners for coming in. That's the Commercial Real Estate After Show. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast and see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.